This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This one park ranger said, said to us, you what the hell are you doing out here now? I mean, what, what, you're crossing the Oregon Trail with mules. Why would you do that? Today, we will be following best-selling author Rinker Buck on an unusual journey down a very famous trail, which he made for no other reason than the fact that nobody had done it before, at least not in our lifetime. If you enjoy adventure, history, or even just the legendary Oregon Trail computer game, you'll enjoy this episode. It's definitely the most authentic experience of history I have ever heard. But first, I want to say welcome and welcome back to Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer, and I've missed you guys. This is our first episode of 2023. I took a break to do some traveling and work on some other projects, which I'll also be sharing with you on this feed. Because we've got some big news. Armchair Explorer is now a part of the APT Podcast Studios, which is the podcast arm of American Public Television, which is a huge honor because they absolutely share our passion for telling stories that matter in the most authentic way possible. So while we'll be releasing new episodes of Armchair Explorer every other week in our usual format, we're going to have some very special documentary episodes airing on the weeks in between. Each one will be focused on a particular destination and theme, from exploring the indigenous history of Rocky Mountain National Park to soaking up the music of Tennessee and even joining in a Buffalo Roundup. And all of them will be recorded on location for the most immersive possible experience. So keep an eye out for those. They'll be out every other week and they'll be labeled on location in the title so you know what to expect. But for now, let's get ready to hit the trail because you're going to love Rinker's story. It's a story of one man and a crazy journey, but it's also the story of America. Are you ready? Let's go. Rinker Buck is an author and journalist whose passion for adventure has taken him down rivers, across plains, and up into the skies. He's written several books, including The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey, about this adventure, and his latest book, Life on the Mississippi, An Epic American Adventure, which chronicles another historical journey brought to life when Rinker built an 1800-style wooden flatboat to sail down the entire length of the Mississippi River. 
Life on the Mississippi was just released on paperback, so make sure you go and pick that up if you like what you hear today. But first, we have a covered wagon ride to take. For many people, knowledge of the Oregon Trail begins with covered wagons and ends shortly thereafter, at least in the computer game, with You Died of Dysentery. In fact, it's famous as much for its effect on settling the American West as it is for the grim conditions that pioneers face while journeying along it. But while these conditions are usually left to the imagination of modern vehicle-bound historians, Rinkerbuck wanted to go one layer deeper and experience the Oregon Trail the authentic way. Which isn't that surprising, because this wasn't the first time Rinker took such an ambitious journey. His approach to adventure had been set into motion decades earlier. The best thing that can happen to produce a writer is that you grow up in a wacko family. So, among other things, there was 11 of us on a big old rambling farm in New Jersey. And my father had been a World War II pilot, very experienced World War II pilot, and taught us how to fly, among other things. By the time we were 10 or 11, we, we could fly the plane for him if we were going somewhere and he would sleep on the passenger side, you know. When my brother was 17 and had just acquired, as young as you can at 17, his flying license, he had this dream of rebuilding an old Piper Club that this was in 1967 or so, which we had just bought at the airport for $300. We bought it for $300, took it home back to our barn, and completely rebuilt it over the winter. Just absolutely took everything apart and rebuilt it, including the fabric and did a lot of work on the engine and stuff. When we were done, my brother said, well, what are we going to do with it? And he said, let's fly to California and back. Which was insane. This is a plane that was designed to fly in circles around a landing strip. It's a training plane. No one in their right minds would try and fly it to the next town, let alone across the country. No electrical system, no starter. You started the engine by pulling the prop. No radio, no lights, no nothing. It had a total of four instruments on the instrument panel in the front. On the highways, as we traveled west, the cars were passing us. Okay, that's how primitive an airplane this was. So <clears throat> we took off, and it was just this marvelous trip, you know, where we camped out under the wings at night, and, you know, we got to airports and there was no fuel, and we had to run downtown to a gas station and get a little bit of auto fuel for the plane and put that in and pray like hell that we made it to Fulton, Kentucky, where there, where there probably would be fuel. Stuff like that. We got caught in thunderstorms and stuff. And I've always been proud of the fact that we navigated from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to El Paso, Texas, a distance of 1,600 miles. There was no major landmark except the Mississippi River, but no major landmark like a city or anything during those 1,600 miles. And we never got lost. And in seven days of all kinds of wonderful misadventures, we reached California. And so we became the youngest aviators ever to fly coast to coast. Rinker writes of those early days that travel became my endorphin. I escaped to live, he says. I escaped to elude ennui and the boredom of everyday life. But as the years passed, everyday life took over. 
He got married, became a father, got divorced. His adventures slowed and he gradually morphed into what he describes as that familiar subspecies of the North American male, the divorced booze hound with low self-esteem. He knew that he had to escape again. And with that, an idea began to creep into the edges of his mind. The Oregon Trail has not been authentically crossed since 1909 in a covered wagon with mules and everything. And I said, well, you know, I grew up with horses. I've, I've been driving wagons and driving teams my entire life. And it's not really that crazy an idea to become the first guy in 100 years to buy a team of mules in a covered wagon and cross the Oregon Trail the old-fashioned way. We had no vehicular support, none of this phony stuff that the reenactors do and so forth. Nobody was meeting us with showers or food trucks and that kind of thing. We camped on the plains every night. It was just this marvelous adventure which allowed me, because I was telling the story through the lens of actually being in a covered wagon and driving mules, it allowed me to see this iconic space, this linear map of America called the Oregon Trail. It allowed me to see it as the pioneers did and therefore mix in all the history that, uh, that I was able to find. And, you know, I, I, look, I look for the unusual story, not, not the one that everyone's been told. The popular narrative is ripe with manifest destiny, overflowing with that rugged, masculine American spirit, dripping in confidence and self-righteousness and adventure. But in reality, westward travel was brutal and complicated. People often made their journeys out of necessity, fleeing poverty, religious persecution, and economic disaster. Conflict with other travelers, Native Americans, and Mother Nature were daily occurrences. Those who managed to arrive in Oregon were often injured, starving, and desperate, usually having lost many of their party. But Rinker had made up his mind. He was buried in his life, stifled and stagnant, and he needed to do something big to extract himself. I knew that naivete is the mother of adventure, he writes in the first chapter of the book. I just didn't understand how much of that I really had. He bought an old covered wagon and three mules named Beck, Jake, and Butte, and he emailed his brother Nick to ask for his help, the same brother he had flown across the country with. Nick was an experienced mule driver, and he insisted on joining Rinker for the journey. This was an authentic 1883 Peter Shuttler wagon that had been restored. The seats are very hard, and our backs were sore for the first couple of weeks until we adjusted to it. And you're in this tunnel vision of a covered wagon, which is, is kind of comes down low and around you, and you don't have good peripheral vision. If you run into a big thunderstorm, you've got to sort of pucker in all that canvas around you and protect yourself from the rain. And that's, you know, that's really claustrophobic. So there, there were a lot of physical challenges that I didn't realize. Every morning when we woke up, we'd make ourselves a breakfast and then feed the mules. It was 45 minutes from the time we finished breakfast. Two guys working with three mules, 45 minutes to get the mules hooked up and ready to run. It was a lot of work. We were tired. By the time we started in the morning, we just sat back on the seat and made ourselves a sandwich or something, and we were exhausted already. 
This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Beginning in Kansas, they traveled over what Rinker describes as a universal American landscape. Level farm ground in some spots, pale green from recent planting, and then wetlands and fringes of forests climbing the Flint Hills. He and Nick quickly fell into a rhythm, learning the quirks of each mule and growing into more confident team drivers, cattle bounding over to the fence lines to stare at us as we passed, meadowlarks bobbing above the grasslands and low creamy sun on our backs. And then one morning they arrived at the Big Blue River in Kansas for what seemed like a simple river crossing but the trail had other ideas in mind. Well, the funny thing about it is, I knew that the river crossings would be the most difficult because they were the most difficult for the pioneers. And in their case, they either had to make a ferry when they got there, put all the wagons on uh, logs and float them across. And we got to a place in central Nebraska where there was a ford, a famous ford across the uh, Big Blue River. and. Now there's this brand new modern bridge across it, you know? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's not really fair that we're doing it this way because it's nothing like what the pioneers faced. Well, I didn't realize that mules are really pathologically afraid of something called expansion joints. We're happily crossing the bridge and the mules see that expansion joint and they go, no, we are not crossing this. And these are big 17-hand mules weighing 1,500 pounds a piece. And if they decide that they're in charge now and they're not gonna do something you wanna do, you're just along for the ride. So we got to that expansion joint and the mules were rearing and backing up and refusing to cross it, whatever. And the traffic was coming along and one of the mules, Butte, like his minivan came by too close and she kicked it. 
You know, it was just a minivan full of kids. She kicked it. It was a very perilous situation. And finally, I just knew that Jake, he was our middle mule. He was the only male mule. And he was just this very, very solid, reliable, imperturbable guy. And I just started talking to him. Jake, we need you to get across. And these two Molly mules here, they've been a problem all along. Now, Jake, I need you to do this for me. Jake, come on, Jake. And Jake just looked back at me once, wiggled his ears, and took a running start. And mules are unbelievably strong jumpers. They have very strong hind legs. Took a running start and catapulted off his rear legs and jumped right over that expansion joint. Beck, the lead mule on the right, there was no way she was ever gonna let Jake go to a place that she didn't get there first. So she jumped. And then Butte, the last mule on the left, who was this, you know, lazy old slug, whatever. She just got yanked across by the two other mules. And when we got to the other side, then we had a runaway, then they just ran away from there and you just kind of had a runaway down the bridge and almost hit a cop car. We got to the end and we finally got the mules stopped and we pulled off to the side of the road and we just, both my brother and I were panting, you know, going like he, he goes, man, I mean, I just, you know, Nothing scares me, man, but I'll tell you, we almost just got killed there. And you realize that there was this sort of vestigial guilt. Well, we weren't really crossing the plains like the pioneers were. You know, we weren't going down in the river and pulling. What we did that morning, jumping across that expansion point with those three mules, was much more dangerous than anything a pioneer ever faced. So, so you kind of get a perspective on your trip and, and laugh at yourself. For days after the river crossing, the challenges continued with biblical level floods. They rode through forked lightning, calmed the mules when they panicked, and slogged through deep squelching mud. Until finally, they arrived at the Platte River Valley in Nebraska. And ironically, for a trail where water scarcity often proved fatal, this abundantly wet part of the journey was known as the Valley of Death because the network of drainage streams that make up the valley were ripe with waterborne diseases, particularly cholera. But it's also one of the most sublime stretches of the entire trail. The Platte River Valley is one of the most spectacularly beautiful rivers you could ever see. And what happens is there's no mountains between the Rockies and basically the East Coast, there's no big mountains. So the clouds gather up against the Rockies just west of the Platte River and pours hellacious rainstorms. When Pioneer wrote, he said, Mom, you may think it rains and thunders in Indiana, but if you really want to see what it's like, come to the Platte River in Nebraska. So you, you, we were driving along and we were literally right on the Oregon Trail. We were on a stretch there, a 50-mile stretch that are the original ruts that the local ranchers showed us. And it was like you're riding on a magic carpet through the most beautiful wildflower things you've ever saw. And it was so dramatic because those wildflowers are scented so strong. And so you're flying through this, riding in a wagon through this olfactory miracle and there's bees flying all around. There's a lot of bees flying around because they need to get to that nectar. But they're not interested in you. They are just desperate to get to that nectar. So there was this beautiful sensation of flying through 
an unexpected flowerscape in the middle of the desert. And that made the pioneers realize that Nebraska was going to be a great place to settle and a great place to farm. Because anything that birthed wildflowers like that in the spring was going to be tillable soil. So there was just spectacular amounts of beauty. But on the Oregon Trail, beauty and danger often exist as two sides of the same coin. And just a few days later, they encountered the notoriously challenging O'Fallon's Bluff. What seemed like a mild stretch of rolling hills soon morphed into a wind-whipped ridgeline with dusty gales buffeting the wagon at over 30 miles an hour. With the sun sinking and no time to retrace their steps, they were forced to continue forward despite near zero visibility in the swirling sandstorm. But clinging tightly to the reins and squinting into the stinging dirt and wind, they managed to emerge from the cloud of dust on the other side. And what they witnessed was breathtaking. Shafts of sunlight punching through the breaks in low clouds, the verdant crop fields shining green along the plat, as Rinker describes it. And as he gazed over the valley, he felt something electric, complete purified uncertainty, he writes. That's what I was living for now. Before this journey, his life was static, listless, predictable. Now, looking down across the wildflowers of the Platte River Valley, he realized he had no idea what lay around the bend or through the sandstorm. And that uncertainty, like the naivete with which he began, was the fuel of his journey and the bedrock of his escape. But the popular narrative of the Oregon Trail, that heroic push into the future of a fledgling country, hides a darker truth. And he would soon encounter that too. Ash Hollow was a very tragic place. It was a very deep ravine in the earth near Llewellyn, present-day Llewellyn, Nebraska. And a very strong stream bed came through there and it supported the Sioux tribe for generations. And it was right along the Oregon Trail. And it became a big, huge stop along the trail. Families would stop there for up to a week, kind of resupply, gather their energy, fix their wagons, etc. They were now occupying the space that for hundreds and hundreds of years had supported the Sioux tribe and its buffalo hunts and everything else. And the most tragic aspect of it was that they carried cholera and other measles, chicken pox. The European descended pioneers who traveled the trail held immunity to these diseases, but the Sioux and many other Native Americans did not. And one day in 1849, an army surveyor traveling through Ash Hollow encountered an eerie sight. The whole ravine abandoned, except for a solitary teepee. A woman, a brave, and three or four children who all knew they were gonna die because they had contracted cholera or maybe it was chickenpox. They dressed in their most beautiful ceremonial garb and they lay down together in that teepee and died. And this particular officer got there probably the next morning. And here was arrayed a whole family of Sioux in their 
best attire, you know, moccasins with all these beads on them and, you know, beautiful deerskin outfits and everything in the repose of death, you know. And to me, that symbolized the tragedy of the European meeting with the First Peoples in the middle of the desert of, of, of America. Most of us don't have any real reason to reckon with what the European coming to North America meant for these peoples. And they now know, we now know, there's been a lot more genealogical and demographic research. We now know that we were able to conquer America and especially the Plains because millions and millions of native peoples had died from European diseases that preceded us when we got there. So when you come to a place like Ash Hollow and you're standing it right at this spot and you can look up on the steep hollow of the ridge there and you can see right where that teepee was where the family had dressed up to die, it's a more visceral and a more visual reckoning with the true past of American history. In places like Ash Hollow, the land itself carries memory, clutching the invisible remnants of this legacy and offering them for re-examination. To Rinker, the true past of the United States was beginning to solidify as if emerging from mist, and it didn't resemble what he had learned in school. He had always heard of manifest destiny, but the more he researched, the less important those grand ideals seemed. Because in reality, many of the people traveling the Oregon Trail were desperate, desperately poor, hungry, fearful, and lost. They didn't travel in heroism or to fulfill some grand philosophical ideal. They traveled because they had to, and because, just like Rinker, they were naive of what the road ahead might bring. Rinker recounts the little-known story of a missionary named Narcissa Whitman, whose journey impacted the future of the entire country. When Narcissa Whitman's letters were published, it opened the West for travel because everyone was afraid to travel with their family. They weren't gonna bring along their wives and children. But, you know, Narcissa Whitman would say things like, oh, mother and father, in crossing the Platte River with the aid of the Sioux, it, you know, it was no more difficult than a tourist ride in the stagecoach up to see Niagara Falls, you know. And it's just revolutionized American society, revolutionized Americans' expectations of what the trip should be. If this lady hadn't ridden side saddle and the, the image of her riding side saddle and galloping up over South Pass, which is the Continental Divide, is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. She went ahead of the party, left the party. She was so avid to cross South Pass, left the party so that they fell out of sight and rode, galloped, side saddle up South Pass. That single act, that description of that image when it circulated in the East, did more to drive pioneers to take the Oregon Trail and the other trails west than any other single factor. And you actually, you actually almost have to go there to be jogged to the importance of it. Because when I got to South Pass and we crossed South Pass, there's a beautiful monument to Narcissa Whitman. So 
What you're doing when you make journeys like this is you're learning that the establishment history that you were taught in schools, well, that has nothing to do with how the common man led their life. I mean, the West was settled. The West was settled because a fairly misfit female missionary from the Finger Lakes who married who married, she married Marcus Whitman because he was the only guy who had ever said to her, well, I'm going out west, I'm going to cross the plains and find an Indian tribe to evangelize. And she said, oh, that, you know, that's, that's good, I'm going to do that, you know. You're never taught in high school. So that's what the trip did for me. It, it, it caused me to question truths about our past that I might not have looked at. The inscrutable shape of history, still partially obscured by mountain haze and purple clouds, seemed to move in parallel to the wagon, emerging gradually from its mist as they wound past landmarks like Chimney Rock, Scott's Bluff, and Devil's Gate. This dotted line of striated sandy rock formations guided them across Wyoming, ushering them underneath the iron-colored peaks of the Rockies and over the great waving expanses of prairie. But just before they crossed into Idaho, they arrived at the Bear River Valley. And like Odysseus choosing between the rock and the hard place, Rinker and Nick found themselves facing a decision between two difficult routes. One was a network of sharply curving highways crowded with 18-wheelers, and the other was an impossibly steep pathway cutting straight down the ridgeline, simply called the rock slide. And in true pioneer style, they opted for the rock slide. And we made a wrong turn. I couldn't couldn't turn around. Actually, the trail in that area, trail part I wanted to take was not in good shape. And we went down three quarters of a mile. We had to go straight down and drop from 8,300 feet to 6,000 feet. It was the scariest thing in my life. I mean, you know, like, and there was a 300-foot drop just to the left of the wagon. And I said, Nick, look, if anything happens, I'm on the right-hand side here. I can just jump off and probably be safe. But if you go over with the wagon, you know, I'll come down and I'll come down and get you. You know, I mean, he'd be dead. But you know, it's 300-foot drop. And he said, Don't worry about me. Just come back for olive oil. Olive oil was his dog. I was handling the brakes. My brother was driving the team. I had to deliberately use the brakes in such a way that we jackknifed our cart against the cliffs on our right side so that the cart and the hub digging into the cliff would act as a brake, you know. We had a big, huge log. We found a big log up there that we tied to the end of the wagon, which would slow us down. And these were things I never even read. I, I didn't read about in, until I got home, you, you know, months later and read about the pioneers would occasionally use a log tied behind the wagon to slow them down. But I never heard of anybody using their trail pup, their supply cart behind them, by hitting the brakes in such a way that you jackknifed it into the cliff to slow you down. But it doesn't matter how you get there, you just, you, you have to get there and that's what you do. All my planning was wrong. And that is the accidental reality of travel like this. 
But here, mistakes were potentially deadly. A slight miscalculation of timing, distance, weight, or road condition could leave the wagon stranded, stuck, or even plunging down a hillside. But those consequences, he realized, were what made him feel alive. Because it was in the uncertainty itself that he would find the freedom he had been seeking all along. But Idaho was kinder to Rinker and Nick, a fever dream of state parks and small towns appearing like oases in the late summer heat. In the town of Grandview, they hosed down their mules in a car wash. In Soda Springs, they camped for the night behind the ninth hole of a country club. And when the morning finally arrived that would take them into Oregon, Nick decided that Rinker should drive across the final border by himself to celebrate the culmination of his grand, harebrained idea. That day was just a beautiful early fall morning. The, the team was just trotting along and everything was great. And you come over this cliff or this steep hill and then you look down and there's this beautiful verdant valley down there. It just happens to be a place where they have a lot of alfalfa and orchards and things like that. I came over this hill, I looked down to the green valley down there and then it was a big sign, you know. Welcome to Oregon. And it's a really emotional thing, a big moment. The other thing that was fascinating about reaching Oregon is Eastern Oregon, until you get to the Cascades, Eastern Oregon is a desert. It is real desert and ranch country, real interesting ranchers and stuff. And we had a lot of misadventures crossing, staying on the trail there. Some ranchers took us up to a, a stretch of original trail that hadn't been ridden on by a cover wagon and probably a hundred years, and we got to cross that, and that was beautiful. But in eastern Oregon, near the area called Farewell Bend, an irrigation reservoir was built in the 1920s, right over the Oregon Trail. So we got there. And it, the terrain all around it was very rough, very difficult. So we got there, and we're just kinda, I'm just kind of sitting on the wheel hub, trying to figure out what to do. And I see this white pickup coming over the hills. The man behind the wheel, a local rancher named Vince, told them that word of their wagon journey had preceded them on the trail. And knowing that the terrain around the reservoir would be difficult to navigate, Vince had been driving by every afternoon to try and intercept them. And so he led us in his pickup through this very circuitous route, through this ranch country, it, we went 47 miles and we had the mules in harness until 11 o'clock at night because it took us that long to follow this pickup through the circuitous thing. But, but that was a very suitable way to end the trip. And it was also part of the big discoveries of the trip, which was that I called them trail family. You know, you get somewhere, there's no way for you to get through. You need hay, you need water, whatever. And some rancher would miraculously appear out of nowhere or a Mormon who's going up to look at this special site along the Mormon Trail or that special site along the Mormon Trail would come out to help you. And so you learn that, uh, you know, there's sort of miracles of human relationship too that made the trip. And so it was a very fitting end to get to Oregon and, and have experiences like that. And in one of those unforgettable trail miracles, rancher Vince and his wife Sue offered to give all three mules and the wagon a permanent place to stay on their Oregon ranch. 
After months on the road, churning up the dust of generations past, rising with each new purple dawn, watching American history disintegrate like a cloud of dust and reform like a sandstone hill, being challenged, broken, repaired, and shepherded by ghosts, Rinker's journey along the Oregon Trail was finally over. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There is no better venue for discovering history than actually going out and doing it in a new way. I mean, I've read many, many books by some very famous writers and they they get in a car and they drive somewhere. They haven't seen it. They haven't seen it. There's nothing like crossing uh, the Great American Plains. It was a 2,000 mile trip with mules at four miles an hour. You see things, you see every blade of grass and that leads you to understanding what the history was that was there. And it always impresses me how if you're moving slowly and you're out in the open air, you can tell a farm is coming because you know they have a, a wood mill there and you can smell the wood. You can smell the manure that's just been spread on the fields. So there is a passion a kind of sensual feast that occurs when you're out in the open air. In a car, you're hermetically sealed. Even if, if it's the middle of the summer and you have all the windows open, you're still hermetically sealed, moving at 60 miles an hour past a landscape that you just don't see. What I learned most is to respect what I don't know and even to embrace what I don't know. It's very important to embrace and deal with what you don't know. That void creates an openness of mind to experiment, to try something different. So what you're doing is you're traveling into the unknown, you're, you're embarking across a void of knowledge and you embrace that. You just make it up as you go along. That's, that's what that kind of travel is about. You become a wholer self all the possibilities of life that you've cherished all these years, all of that becomes merged into one experience. The subspecies of despondent North American male was gone. The journey had buried that person under layers of desert sand and lava rock and river water and prairie grass. And embracing the void of uncertainty and chasing down the unknown with outstretched arms had allowed Rinker to forge an entirely new self 
one built upon those old foundations, but brimming with new confidence, curiosity, and optimism. Someone with a truly American spirit. Well, that is the end of this adventure. But in fact, Rinker stumbled across his next adventure and his next book before he had even finished his journey along the Oregon Trail. After several harrowing river crossings on the journey, he was curious to learn more about river navigation of the earliest trail travelers. He stopped into the local library in the Dolls, Oregon, where he met someone who was researching that very subject, the flatboat era, he called it. So I said, flatboat era? What's that? I built a flatboat and sailed it from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, all the way to New Orleans, 2,000 miles. Took us five months. It turns out that the real pioneer era, the real frontier of America was along the rivers, not necessarily trails. So that led to a book called Life on the Mississippi, which is coming out in paperback this month. And it was, again, just an enormous amount of fun floating down the river, you know, in a real old 19th century flatboat. And if you want to hear about that adventure, well, you'll have to buy the book. And let me tell you, I love the book of this story, so I'm definitely going to be picking up his next one. Life on the Mississippi, an epic American adventure. And you can find links to both books in the show notes or online at simonandschuster.com. So we have lots of other incredible names coming up soon. So stay tuned. We're going to be hearing about everything from exploring the deepest oceans to conserving elephants, crossing deserts, and more. And we'll have those special on-location destination episodes airing every other week too. So make sure to keep an eye out for those. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast and follow us on your favorite platform. It just takes a moment and it really does us a huge favor that enables us to keep producing this show for you. Thank you for everything that you can do. And don't forget to check out aptpodcaststudios.com to find more of their awesome shows. So excited to be part of that team. So until next time, keep embracing uncertainty, keep your eyes on the horizon, and keep letting naivete be your guide. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This podcast was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. Armchair Explorer is a part of APT Podcast Studios. Jenny Allison wrote and co-produced the show along with me, and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.